listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 217. In this episode, we are talking about sexual harassment and other abuses in the political cesspool that is Albany. But first, the news. Last month, the people of Myanmar awoke to a recurring nightmare in the country's turbulent political history, the return of the military junta. Following an overwhelming defeat in the national elections, the military was none too happy and seized the capital and arrested the civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was globally reviled, but still seen as a bridge to democratic government by Myanmar's citizenry, despite her links to the genocide of the Rohingya people. It's been only a few years since the country's embryonic partial democracy emerged from military rule, and once again, the people are resisting. In addition to the youth-led street protests in cities across the country, a big strike wave has swept through the nation, shutting down many public and private sector workplaces. Public hospital workers and other civil servants have been at the forefront, staging work stoppages that have affected an estimated 24 government ministries. Teachers have refused to teach. Various government bureaucrats have been terminated for abandoning their jobs. Mines, construction sites, and the state-run oil firm have also been paralyzed in recent days. And one of the largest private sector workforces, garment workers, have been especially militant. While rallying to demand a restoration of democracy, garment workers have called on the international brands for which they produce clothes to guarantee that no workers will be fired for participating in the demonstrations. Some garment worker union leaders have also been arrested, part of a long-standing pattern of labor activists being targeted by the state in order to suppress dissent. The unions have been calling for international solidarity from other labor organizations worldwide. I spoke with Andrew Tillett-Sachs, a labor organizer based in Myanmar, about how the labor movement has been involved with the uprising and what the next steps are for the strikers. Workers and unions have led the resistance movement against the military coup and really catalyzed the entire national uprising that we're seeing across Myanmar. The coup happened on February 1st. And in the days that followed the coup, the Myanmar public really waited around for a call to action and a call for protests from the the NLD, the the previously ruling party of, of Aung San Suu Kyi. And to many people's surprise, the NLD was was silent. And those calls to action and those calls for street protests never came. So while most of the Myanmar public waited for these calls, the unions were organizing their members. And the first group to respond was the, the public sector workers who started striking. Uh, just a few days after the coup. They're calling it the the civil disobedience movement, the CDM. But in effect, what it is, is it's civil servants or the public sector refusing to work. Uh, And so these are workers in the, you know, it started with with public health care workers, and it soon spread to teachers, to transport workers like railway and shipping workers. Um, to miners in, in you know, public mining areas, uh, all kinds of different like administrative offices for the government and even some to, to you know, central public banking workers. And so that started just a few days after the coup, but there was no 
street mobilizations yet. And so the, the garment workers were the ones who really started the first street protests. They protested and took photos and videos and they spread them all over social media. And the images of, you know, these garment workers, mostly, you know, overwhelmingly young women between the age of 18 and 25 uh, protesting against the, the military, really kind of, you know, in some ways shocked, but really inspired uh, people across Myanmar, broke down a lot of the fear that existed. And in the days that followed, we saw enormous street protests where people all over the country from Mandalay to Yangon um, to Naypyidaw just poured into the streets in the millions. And since then, it's really been an uprising. That's the the word that the Myanmar people are using to refer to the protests as a national uprising. Day after day after day of millions of people in the streets. And so, you know, what has it been like in the last couple of days? Well, the Myanmar military is infamous for its willingness to to brutally repress dissent and, you know, in more concrete terms, to shoot and kill protesters. And so that's exactly what we've seen in the past few days. So at this point, likely around 60, uh, I think there's, you know, 56 or 57 confirmed protesters who have been shot and killed by the military during street protests. But the number is likely actually higher. Um, And there's many who are critically injured that um, will likely add to that list going forward. But the, the military is at this point, any time where there's a street protest and they continue to pop up every single day in cities across the country, almost immediately opening fire, um, trying to disperse the crowds. Um, but, you know, it's pretty obvious they're also shooting to kill workers and, and students are being, you know, shot in the chest, shot in the head. Um, and there's just awful images of protesters um, being killed, spreading across the internet. And so it's really at this point, um, it's, it's, it's like a war zone. And so this is a, a, a scene that is only escalating. And I think it's only going to get worse in terms of the, the brutality from the military from, from here on out. So as we move forward, and the crackdowns continue. I mean, what do you what do you expect in the next several weeks or months as these protests continue? And and for those of us who are observing from abroad, um, what are some things that the international labor movement uh, could be doing in the next few weeks or months to show solidarity? The challenge right now for the resistance movement is can they coordinate and pull off an extended nationwide general strike? The Myanmar P5 
people have no weapons. They have no arms. And the, monop and the monopoly of arms is, is just overwhelming by the Myanmar military. And so strategically, the main weapon that the Myanmar people have is their labor at this point. They've already once had a one-day general strike on February 22nd, but it was a one-day call. And so I think going forward, the, the street battles and the street demonstrations are not going to be enough. I don't think it's enough just for the, the public sector and the garment workers um, to be striking. The strikes have to spread again, but for a longer time to the whole country, to all of the private sector. And, you know, the Myanmar military is, is like closely intertwined with the, the wealthy and business community in, in Myanmar. The military owns tons and tons of, um, of the economy. And so if they can shut down the economy and for an extended period of time, they can put significant pressure on the military. So in, that leads to, you know, how people can support from abroad. And, you know, I, th I think one obvious way is with helping provide strike funds. None of the unions have any strike funds. Um, it just doesn't exist as a concept in, in Myanmar. And so when I'm talking with the, the unions on the ground every day and saying, okay, well, what do you need? How can we help you organize and expand a general strike? I said, well, we need funds. And so there's, you know, there's a few um, bona fide, you know, fundraisers and GoFundMe that are set up that I know for a fact are being channeled directly to the unions uh, that I can share with you, Michelle, and maybe you can share with your audience. Um, and those are funds that are being wired every day straight to the unions that are organizing this fight back. So, you know, that's one way. You know, another way is to call and talk to and put pressure on, um, you know, your, your political representatives in the U.S. Myanmar unions are, are calling on the U.S. government to take action in any way they can to pressure the Myanmar military. And so if folks can call their congresspeople and um, – tell them that this is an important issue and the American government needs to take action in solidarity with the Myanmar people, any pressure there would, would be very, very helpful. Um, so, and, and, you know, then it, it's less important, but just solidarity uh, statements and videos that people can, you know, post on social media and send those they're not going to win the fight. You know, they're not going to be decisive for the Myanmar people, but they help just in terms of keeping morale high. I mean, this is an unbelievably difficult fight. And um, so those things are always helpful. That was Andrew Tillett-Sachs, a Myanmar-based labor organizer. And if you'd like to hear a fuller version of that interview, there will be a longer cut available to our sustaining members on our Patreon page. 
While we wait to see whether Democrats will or won't fight for a $15 minimum wage, there's another subject of interest to workers that's sliding a little bit further below the radar. That is the question of gig workers, and it is something that we have covered, of course, recently on this show with driver and rideshare drivers United organizer Nicole Moore and economist Marshall Steinbaum back in episode 214. The news broke last week from former belabored co-host Josh Idelson that several big unions, including the Teamsters and SEIU, are considering a sectoral bargaining agreement with Uber and Lyft to keep drivers classed as contractors rather than employees while giving them some union representation. In response, a group of well-known labor scholars, including Steinbaum and several other former belabored guests, Nelson Lichtenstein, Jane McAlevey, Eileen Boris, Ruth Milkman, and Eric Loomis among them, released a letter on principles for sectoral bargaining. While you can listen back to our episode a few weeks ago with Marshall for much more on the subject, I wanted to call everyone's attention to this statement and consideration going forward on the question of sectoral bargaining. Notably, of course, here at Dissent, we commissioned Nelson Lichtenstein to write on the subject for a recent special issue co-edited by Michelle and myself. As Marshall told us on our recent episode, sectoral bargaining is being offered by the big companies as a way to get unions on side, but those unions notably don't actually represent these workers yet. So I'm going to read just a little bit from the statement, even though I don't want to just, you know, read it at you, to remind people of what sectoral bargaining is and is not. Quote, Indeed, some sectoral bargaining schemes by themselves could create a mechanism by which employers can further erode or undermine universal or near-universal labor standards embodied in both statute and existing collective bargaining agreements. Proponents of sectoral bargaining are, in many instances, forthright about their aim in that regard. The point is for empowered employers to bargain down labor standards below statutory levels. For example, executives of gig economy labor platforms like Uber and Lyft have promoted sectoral bargaining as an alternative to employment classification and NLRA unionization, and as a component of the third category they've long lobbied for and now achieved with California's Proposition 22. Sectoral bargaining is not promising for workers in this context. The context in which sectoral bargaining or multi-employer bargaining makes sense is one in which employers are atomized and bringing any one of them to the table is irrelevant to the status of workers when any one employer has relatively little influence over labor standards. But that is not a factual interpretation of the ride-hailing or food delivery markets. Instead of atomized subcontractors or suppliers, there are a few dominant employers with a great deal of unilateral power over labor standards. In fact, where nascent worker representation has existed in the so-called gig economy, the companies have done everything they can to stamp it out in favor of company unions. Moreover, the model the gig platforms have succeeded in carving out for themselves threatens to extend into other sectors and states, undermining employment status, statutory entitlements, NLRA unions, and wages and worker standards well beyond what we now understand as the gig economy. The crucial point is that the gig economy is not a sector so much as a segment of the labor market carved out of pro-worker regulation. What is at issue is how large law and regulation permits that segment to be, end quote. And I will be returning to this issue a little bit later in today's show. Listeners of this podcast will know that Uber drivers are indeed workers, but in February, a British court finally agreed with what labor activists have been saying for years. 
In a case brought by former Uber drivers who challenged the company's labor practices, the Supreme Court of Britain ruled that Uber drivers are not self-employed, as the company claims, and that they are actually employees, which entitles them to minimum wage and holiday pay. The ruling also opens the question of whether Uber is on the hook for the value-added tax, or VAT, which all transportation providers must pay. The court's decision caps the end of a long legal battle, which started about five years ago with an employment tribunal involving two former drivers, James Farrar and Yassin Aslam, who had claimed that Uber was their employer. Aslam is also president of the App Drivers and Couriers Union, and Farrar is its secretary. After a series of appeals, the Supreme Court delivered the final word on the perennial question dogging the gig economy. In arriving at the decision, the court considered several key questions that are similar to the legal framework that labor advocates have pushed for in lawsuits that drivers have filed against Uber in the U.S. The court determined that in this case, Uber determined drivers' wages by setting fares, unilaterally imposed contract terms that dictated the drivers' working conditions, penalized drivers if they refused ride requests, and used the app's star rating system to basically terminate drivers who received too many poor ratings. In the U.S., the so-called ABC test also based the determination of employee status versus independent contractor status on similar criteria, including the degree of control that a company exerts over a worker's labor conditions and the relationship of the worker's job to the company's core business. It's not quite clear what the implications of the U.K. ruling are, since it was a tribunal involving just two drivers and not a class action per se. But certainly, it has been seen as a watershed by advocates for gig workers, particularly during the pandemic. Drivers have in many cases had to stop driving because fares in the U.K. have dropped some 80%, while the government has offered only limited relief to gig workers. For many drivers, it's just not worth it to go out on the road. Farrar told the BBC, quote, We're seeing many of our members earning £30 gross a day right now. If we had these rights today, those drivers could at least earn minimum wage to live on, unquote. So we don't know if this ruling will have a ripple effect across the pond, but in the wake of Prop 22 in California, that's the ballot measure that effectively stripped rideshare drivers of their labor rights, an affirmation of the status of drivers as workers by a court of law is refreshing news. The question of organizing the tech sector is fresh on everyone's minds these days. And so today we are happy to bring you a success story. The workers at Glitch, a coding platform software company, have secured their first collective bargaining agreement, which is maybe the first such agreement in the industry. And I spoke to Sheridan Cates, one of those workers, about how it happened. I'm Sheridan. Um, I'm a software engineer at Glitch. Um, and Glitch is a, um, it's just a way to make web applications. It's really easy. Um, I was attracted to it just because um, there's so much in the computer industry that still a little gatekeeping. Glitch is kind of like the fastest way to like basically get from zero to something that's on the internet that you can share with your friends that you've customized yourself, uh, basically build, building your own web applications. Excellent. So we're talking because you at Glitch have one of the first collective bargaining agreements in the tech sector. Tell us a little bit about the process of organizing and forming the union. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess like the whole process, like end to end, has been a little over a year. Um, just like we all sort of talking about it um, between us um, sort of back like early in 2020, um, just like you know, thinking that, like, you know, we, we, in general, like, you know, we, we all were a group that like really felt kind of strongly that, you know, in, in, in tech, like, there's a lot of things that, you know, there's a lot of 
lack of regulation. There's a lot of like, you know, companies not necessarily doing the best things out there. Um, and, you know, we're a group of people that feel really strongly about, you know, ethics in tech, good community, like building products that like, you know, protect against harassment, all that kind of stuff. So like, we really kind of like wanted to sort of like talk that talk as well from like a worker perspective. Um, so we kind of just started out on like signal, like just trying to like um, get some, you know, gauge each other's support. Like I learned a lot about organizing in this whole process. So, you know, the the first sort of like um, step is like, you know, to have like little one-to-one -one conversations to sort of like gauge out people's support, like how many people are in favor of a union, how many people are kind of like on the fence, don't really know um, how many people are strongly against. Um, we discovered that there was a ton of support, right? We had like, you know, most people were just really enthusiastic about it. Um, so, gosh, it must have been actually just probably before the pandemic started that we kind of uh, did the kind of official announcement um, where we started, you know, like changing our, like we, we, we just, we're a remote company. So that's what that was the kind of ads, like uh, we were remote before the pandemic as well. Um, and so we started changing our avatars on Slack, which is this like, you know, chat application that we use at work. Um, so like we changed uh, our avatars to a red sort of CWA um, avatar because um, like normally when you do no organizing effort and you're kind of announcing like you would normally wear these like wristbands as, like to show your support for the union but obviously that doesn't make sense for remote companies um, and then we uh, we went to the CEO um, to ask for recognition um, to, to, to Neil and uh, yeah no I mean I think it's uh, it's definitely you know a new concept in the tech industry so I think there's you know some like well you know what, what is this but yeah we got voluntarily recognized um, which got 90% of our um, eligible bargaining, bargaining units to, to sign cards so it was really really strong support. Yeah, that's great. Um, so in bargaining the, the contract that you all have just finalized, um, what were some of the issues that came up and that, that are included in the contract? Yeah, so um, we weren't focusing so much on improvements um, to wages and benefits, although yeah, you know, our benefits are extremely good. Like we, we weren't trying to like get improvements there. Um, wages might come up in the future, um, but really what we were trying to do was um, kind of like establish a um, like a an area like a, a firm ground of, of security, right? So like obviously workers in the U.S. were mostly on these at will contracts. Um, and like that's just you know not a fun position to be in. We actually right after a couple months after um, forming the union, there was actually a round of layoffs um, at Glitch. We lost about forty percent of our workforce. Um, and the union actually, you know, we didn't have a contract signed yet, but they helped represent us in those negotiations. They managed to get more severance. Um, but we really wanted to, like, as part of these negotiations, establish a level of severance that, you know, startups like, can be a risky endeavor, right? Um, but we wanted to just, like, try and, like, level the playing field a little bit, right? So, like, what was really important to us is having sort of, you know, clear severance um, and then just cause, because we think, you know, it's, it's just so important to have that in our industry. Like, we need to be able to speak up. We need to be able able to uh, really you know, you know, bring ourselves to work. We need to be able to feel like we won't be retaliated against. So having that just cause was really important to us. Um, and we also managed to get like, you know, smaller things too, like, um, you know, we most of us are software engineers and so we have to be on call. Um, and so there are, you know, were changes to our schedules and, and such. So like, and, and now it becomes more of like a two-way conversation. It's not just, okay, you, you're going to have this change. You know, we can actually like, you know, ask for what we, what we actually managed to get in the contract with a guaranteed day off uh, within the next sort of like few weeks after the after the on-call period. So little things like that, little improvements, and then sort of just like the overall, um, you know, we, we've got a baseline wage improvement as well, but like nothing nothing too crazy, like we're just like an annual, annual raise. And the recall rate, sorry, that was the other major thing. So like obviously because of those layoffs, we wanted to make sure that like if the company did uh, start hiring again, that the people who were laid off would have first um, right of refusal basically for those positions. 
So what can other workers in the sector learn from your organizing? Are you talking to other people um, at companies that you, I'm sure, can't name about how to do <laughs> We've certainly had some interest. Um, so even before, but like especially like this week, once the, the contract got announced, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely people out there. There's people um, who are just trying to gauge the interest from their work, from their fellow co-workers. I really do think it starts just from like, you know, having that sort of like, like group of people that you're talking to, that safe place, that signal group or something where you start to like gauge that interest. Um, and then the union obviously protects you then. So like, you know, obviously any company can have these like signal groups, but like if management found out, you'd have no protection. Like, you know, they could potentially retaliate against you if they found out you had some unofficial channel. Um, so like, you know, taking that sort of seed of interest, like, and then, you know, turning it into what I talked about before, where you're trying to like map out for your, the, the, the people who would be eligible for your bargaining unit, how much interest is there. Um, I think like what our experience has shown is that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be an adversarial thing. I think a lot of people think that like, you know, forming a union is like, why would you do that if you like, you know, didn't have a really bad relationship with management? We didn't have a bad relationship with management, but we wanted to, you know, codify some of that. We wanted to make it so that, you know, management can change, right? Like, you know, like why, why like, you know, take the risk of like who's in charge um, and like, you know, taking something like a union codifies that, like, you know, put something in place that protects not only you, but like people in the future as well. You know, we have, in the tech industry, we have such a, a, a high potential of impact outside of what we do, right? You know, we build software that like, you know, has, you know, AI models or like, you know, implications that can affect like such a wide range of people and, and really making sure that we have the protections to, um, you know, look out for the people that are affected by this, not just the users of the product, but the communities in which those products get deployed um, is so important. And I think a union is a, is a great tool in that. And that's why. That was Sheridan Cates, a member of the New Glitch Union. Albany, the capital of the Empire State, is known for being a swamp of political corruption and abuse. Yet for well over a decade, New York's famously irascible and sharp-tongued governor, Andrew Cuomo, has managed to escape any major scandals. But now Cuomo's political reputation has been completely upended by three sexual harassment allegations, two of them from women who had been on his staff. But these allegations are just a few of many, many charges of sexual abuse that have been made against various legislators in Albany. We wanted to look at what the Cuomo case reflects about the culture of abuse and discrimination in the Capitol, as well as in other political workplaces. It turns out that a group of former legislative staff formed the Sexual Harassment Working Group in Albany specifically to shine a spotlight on these systemic problems of patriarchy and abuse in Albany and beyond. We spoke with Rita Passarell, co-founder of the Sexual Harassment Working Group and former legislative counsel and deputy chief of staff to former Assemblyman Vito Lopez. She talked about the laws and policies dealing with sexual harassment, why they don't work, and what can be done to hold abusers in positions of power accountable. So sexual harassment, not a new issue in Albany. Why do you think these charges are coming out now against Cuomo specifically? I think that it is, it's very common for workers to either not report harassment at all or to report it kind of quietly internally and not speak publicly about it. Something I like to always remember to say is that victims are very rational. They sometimes have seen how previous workplace victims have been treated, which is unfortunately often not very well. And uh, for that reason, 
when someone experiences sexual harassment in the workplace, they might just say, you know what, it's not worth saying publicly, not worth reporting. I might just, you know, deal with it in some way um, and move on. Um, terribly, one of these ways that victims move on can be leaving the workforce. This is um, what we saw with a few of Cuomo's accusers and you know, within the sexual harassment working group, a lot of us had the same response. Um, so with that terror that goes along with the power and balance in workplaces, it makes sense that when somebody's at the height of their power, we don't really hear that much pushback from them. Uh, so I think something that's probably come into play now is that there have been a lot of, um, other criticisms of Cuomo on other areas were like COVID response and nursing home deaths. And he's kind of had a few notches, uh, uh, you know, gone a few notches down in power where it might feel more safe for a victim to come out and, and speak. Something else that I certainly think is in play is the farther that the victim gets from the abuse, from the abuser, it's another way to be more safe. Like, they're not working for Cuomo anymore. They maybe are not in the field of work anymore. And I think that helps people to say, you know, it's it's time for me to say something. I'm ready to say something. I feel healed enough to say something. So it's very sensible to me that we're hearing about these um, allegations now. So we were talking before about the way that the entire sort of culture of well, Albany, um, but in general, the workplace and the political workplace um, is kind of set up to enable this kind of harassment and in fact, sort of penalize people who don't participate in it. Yeah. So something that I have noticed when I'm reading these accounts of abuse by uh, Charlotte and Lindsay and Anna well, Anna wasn't in the workplace, but Karen Hinton also uh, wrote an article about a bunch of um, really horrible things that are probably gender discrimination, um, also maybe sexual harassment. When I read those, I noticed that a lot of Cuomo's high-ranking staff that are involved in, you know, basically kind of denying anything went wrong, a lot of those workers are women. And so what I thought when I saw that was, that's interesting. Cuomo's kind of using this, you know, women as a shield, his, his workforce of women as a shield to push back in a sense. And uh, to me, what I see when I look at that is that's maybe another form of discrimination of your workforce. If you're requiring your women workers to participate in uh, enabling sexual harassment and workplace abuse, you're, you're requiring more of them, you know, more bad things, but you're requiring more of them than you're requiring of the men. And uh, that's pretty wrong. And when I've mentioned this to some people who are in the field of, you know, sexual harassment work, there's kind of sometimes a negative response where they're like, well, you're denying these workers agency and they're complicit. So, you know, I don't, I don't like that analysis, but I think it's, I think it's all true at the same time, because I think that the workers can be complicit and they can be doing something wrong, but I think they can also be subject to abuse and discrimination at the same time, because uh, I don't think we can forget that the power dynamic exists to a, you know, almost unfathomable degree in the office of the governor of the state of New York, where it is um, quite hard to, 
say no, frankly, it seems like, especially we've heard, you know, throughout the years, just he kind of has a nasty style to be retributive and um, doesn't seem like a good, nice place to work for many reasons, even aside from the sexual harassment. But when, when your very, very powerful boss is telling you um, you've got to do something for work, you also tend to probably want to believe that it's the right thing. And a lot of people go into government work because they like to do public service. They want to make a positive change. So I think it's a really interesting um, thing to look at in terms of power when you look at his higher staff, especially um, him using them as a defense. Uh, and I think that that culture does perpetuate in a lot of offices where there it's almost like a tokenism as well, where it's, um, you know, making uh making kind of a choice between um, career advancement maybe, or, uh, you know, not participating in abuse. It's, it's very similar to what, what we experienced when I worked for assembly member Vito Lopez in his office, he did something quite similar. He would often pit staff against each other in similar ways. He, um, he did tend to choose to hire women more so than men. And the men he would put in the lower positions usually, and the women would be his higher positions like chief of staff, deputy chief of staff. It was very strange. So I worked there for three months in uh, 2011, 2012. By the third month at the end, he had given me the title of deputy chief of staff. It was my first government job. Um, But the way he did it was he would pit workers against each other and say, okay, well, you know, essentially, you know, paraphrasing, if you go along with this abuse, you go up in title and you get more things and you, you know, you're not, um, you know, if you have the right attitude, you get more benefits, but then he would also punish you at the same time. If you don't go along with the abuse, you get demoted. And he like, it was just a very strange place to work with this um, ups and downs of, of all these changes. He's quite obviously an unstable man. But um, the point, the point is that there is, you know, hiring women and putting them in higher positions so you have access to abuse them is is obviously also gender discrimination and also gender discrimination of the men too because they can't you know be elevated to a higher position because you know Vito didn't care about sexually harassing them so he just kind of forgot about them reminds me of some place i used to work oh well i'm so sorry to hear that i think it's it's a very similar thing that happens in a lot of them um it reminds me of something that in the working group, we kind of, um, we have this horrible and funny phrase that is, we call it the harassers playbook. And we have a, a very brilliant reporter friend, Danielle Chalakian, who recently called it uh, harassers best practices, where it seems like the patterns are so similar that when I read about what these Cuomo accounts are, it sounds like I may as well have been reading about what Vito did. And quite weak we we've gone through a list of them within the working group because a number of us worked in that office and there's, you know, almost each one of them that we read about Cuomo, we say, yep, this was in Vito's office. And I, I also mention that because um, sometimes we hear from, <laughs> from um, essentially people who don't want to believe workers or people who don't want to believe women that, uh, you know, the verbal sexual harassment isn't as serious and, there was some criticisms. Well, he didn't touch her. What did he do? What so what? You know, aside from the fact there was an unwanted kiss, but um, for some of the accusers, it was quote just verbal. Uh, 
it's obviously very damaging. Why is there even that distinction? Like, why? Like, if it's yeah. two words, somehow it's not harassment. Right. So Cuomo, um, he's been known for his bullying attitude and combativeness towards other politicians as well as members of the media, but we don't hear as much, it seems, about his interactions with staff. So as a former staffer in Albany, can you offer any insight about what these sexual harassment charges reflect about the workplace culture in the offices of elected officials and why is this tolerated or even encouraged in political workplaces? Yes. So it is uh, a strange and it seems fairly common belief that you've got to be subject to abuse when you work in politics. We saw a really um, shocking statement almost saying exactly that from the leader of the New York State Dems, Jay Jacobs, yesterday. He said, uh, a little bit paraphrased, he said, if you don't have a thick skin, maybe you don't belong in politics. And this is totally the wrong attitude. And it is um, something that we did experience, that I did experience when I worked for New York State Assemblymember Vito Lopez, where it was just kind of tolerated or just ignored. There were, I remember a number of times when we were in the presence of other elected officials and Vito would make inappropriate comments about his staff member's appearance or dress or um, real strange offers about uh, telling other electeds that uh, – I'm just remembering how gross it was – so that uh, some of his staff members would go with them to Atlantic City and sharing hotel rooms as an offer. He was offering out – basically offering out his staff for sexual – you know, activity, which the staff, of course, was not into this or or agreeing to this, but you would be standing there as a staff member and with other electeds with Vito, your boss, saying this about you. And the right response from another elected would be like, what the hell are you talking about? You cannot say that about your staff. And that's never, that was not the response. Just it was often laughing it off or, um, you know, anything to basically avoid acknowledging the dementedness of what had just been said. And it's, I think, one of the reasons that this happens uh, in Albany is, you know, the power dynamic for sure, because this is a very powerful state and a state, you know, the legislature has a lot of power just as electeds, but also by virtue of their function as legislators, they pass laws and they can slice themselves out of it. I don't think that's um, really going on now or as much now, but there are uh, a number of really uh, disgusting laws where staff of electeds are explicitly not included from protections. And there's just no justifiable reason for this, um, except for the legislators wanting to slice them out from liability. And there's uh, my least favorite case that exists, but one of my most favorite cases to quote is this case where a former worker of former assembly member Gabrizak sued for sexual harassment. I think she was one of seven staffers of his who sued for sexual harassment. And her case that I'm thinking of had gotten dismissed because a totally inexcusable carve out in federal law. There is so federal Title VII protects staff of, you know, staff of other places of from sexual harassment and discrimination. And 
the law has a carve out written into the law that personal staff of elected officials are not covered by the protections of the law. And that's just really wrong. And in the case, they cite that law and they list out all the ways that we can tell that the staff member was, quote, a personal staff. And it is one of these cases that I kind of feel just like sick every time I go back and read it because they list out all of the conditions of this harassed worker's work life to decide why she fits into this exemption, which is to say why she's not protected. And they go through it like this. They say, well, yeah, she was required to like respond very quickly to his texts, required to always be accessible to him, required to be accessible to him after hours and go meet him outside of the workforce and blah, blah. So when you read this, you're essentially reading all of the instances of harassment, but they go through and list those out as reasons why she's personal staff and therefore not protected and therefore the case gets dismissed. And so with laws like that, you know, it's no wonder that electeds have um, a lot of abuse going on in their staff, because if staff are not protected, they are not going to speak out because they're going to know that there's no point because all that will happen. It's often so um, damaging to somebody to speak out against abuse, whether they're still in the job or whether they've left, because once you leave the job, your former worker still has power over you for your recommendations, whether it's like something you know about or you might not ever know. If you have a powerful former boss who's bad-mouthing you in the field, you can never know. And so just thinking about that on the magnitude of a governor, it would be terrifying to speak out against your boss or even your former boss. And it's, you know, it's, it's because these are the people who are in, in charge of the laws. But, you know, we're changing that. We changed it a little bit. We're changing it more. We have a bill actually this year about that, um, that horrible Title VII carve-out in the federal law. We're trying to fix that at the state level in the sense that we're saying, okay, the federal law is trash. We're going to make New York State law super clear so that you're at least protected well under state law where the federal law is useless for you. So the culture of bullying that you're, as you're talking about here, that that sort of allows for various kinds of abusive treatment, as long as it's not essentially against people who are in a protected class, um, right? Like I, I yeah. know all the time when talking to my UK friends that like bullying, when they're like, someone was bullied at work. And I was like, yeah, that's not illegal in America. <laughs> right, right. You can just be bullied all you want and you will get you know treated as a hero. But I wonder if you could talk about the way that like that, that acceptance of just like awful behavior mm -hmm. just creates the space for the sexual harassment to flourish. Right. Yeah. So we've seen a lot of commentary over the past few days as it merged kind of like the first, the, the big press focus was rightfully on assembly member Ron Kim and how um, he spoke against Cuomo's bullying of him. And then when the news uh, about the sexual harassment came out, the news kind of shifted towards to focus on that. And so I think the bullying for sure does open the gate in for the sexual harassment and just other forms of discrimination, because it's like, you know, it's this idea that, well, it's just another type of bullying. And you know, you weren't bullied because you were a woman or you, he didn't say this to you because you were a woman or because you were black, because he just, this is just how t politics goes and you need to have this thick skin. Um, 
it's just totally wrongheaded idea. And I also do want to just remember right now that we all of these victims that we've heard of so far for Cuomo and a lot of the high profile victims we've heard of in general uh, are mostly white women. And I think that's really important to remember in terms of like who is safe enough to speak out. Um, mm. Surely these women were not safe, but it's it's we know for sure based on stats and studies and talking to people that it is, you know, these are not the people who are necessarily experiencing as a class the most abuse. We know black women and other women of color tend to experience it at much higher levels. And these are not what we hear about as much. And I think that, again, this is like when I like to remind us all that victims are very rational because victims look at prior victims and see how they've been treated. Um, and so when somebody's in like, a, a disempowered class, which like is maybe the social term of saying like the protected class in the legal sense. Mm-hmm. It's also easier for someone in power to bully them yeah. um, and pick on them. And so it's like, I think there's a tremendous overlap. I also don't think it's coincidental that Ron Kim is an Asian man and not a white man. Um, so I think that is, um, you know, really, really important to remember because like when, when we, look at the excuses of the abusers, it's often exactly the same, whether it's bullying or discrimination or harassment. And it's, it's like, it's just as a denial going on where it's like, oh, it was, it was quote, just bullying instead of like the, what we consider the worst bullying, which is the discriminatory bullying or the sexual harassment bullying. Um, but it's, you know, it's just an excuse. And there's this acronym that we're kind of obsessed with in the group. And I'm personally obsessed with DARVO. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was a, co- a term coined by uh, Dr. Freyd. She is a um, psychologist or psychiatrist, I forget. But point being, it stands for deny, attack, and reverse the victim and the offender. And this is a really common tactic by abusers. We saw it in Cuomo's statement for sure. He's denying the abuse took place. He's attacking the victims. He's reversing the victim and offender, making himself the victim. He's saying, essentially, you misunderstood me. You got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the holder of of objective reality, and you misunderstood me. Yeah. So next level gaslighting. Yes. So much. So there is a particular challenge when you're coming forward about harassment, when you, the perpetrator is a political figure. So besides like the power that Andrew Cuomo has, and and we all know about his sort of history of being a bully. um, There's also this other thing that happens. And you mentioned the, you know, the head of the democratic party, this issue that will say that that you should suck it up and not say anything because you're hurting the cause. Yeah. You heard Andrew Cuomo, right? Or Eric Schneiderman or any number right. of others. Um, so how is this, how are we seeing this being wielded right now um, and against other people who faced harassment by, you know, quote unquote, progressive politicians? Yeah, definitely like a really important thing to remember. It's just like, when I hear that, it's just like, what are we, a whole world of Machiavelli's here where we're saying any mistreatment is okay as long as we get to the end of keeping a person in power, keeping a political party in power. And I think that whole idea just is premised on the thought that there is like a level of acceptable abuse and that workers are acceptable collateral damage or like the harming of women is acceptable collateral damage to keep a person or a power, a a party in power. And it's just, that's just not true. And we can't, we can't accept that. And so 
now, uh, another Jay Jacobs statement, I think that we've seen that ties into that is that he was kind of rejecting any Republicans from speaking out against this. And he was saying, well, like some, you know, a paraphrase, but he said, well, you know, Republicans, you didn't say anything about Trump raping all those women. So you can't speak now. And it's just like, well, yeah, there's hypocrisy going on, but no, the Republicans should speak now and the Democrats should speak now and every other party should speak now. I only just mentioned those two parties because those are unfortunately who we've got as, you know, the main two parties in power. But um, we did see a really good statement from Working Families Party calling from Cuomo's resignation and the Democratic, uh, the the socialists in the assembly put out a um, statement calling for the resignation of Cuomo as well. I just keep thinking, and somebody was actually um, retweeting a bunch of old tweets about Cuomo the other day, and I saw it because one of them was one of mine, quoting Bertha Lewis, um, saying something about the Women's Equality Party. And so it, of course, made me think of all of the different ways in which Andrew Cuomo has tried to make himself the face of feminism. Yeah. And in the meantime, been actually undermining actual feminist policies. Um, And so on this question, I am very specifically asking about Andrew Cuomo and like, all of the ways we did, in fact, see this coming. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the whole the Women Families Party thing that he made, uh, the Women's Equality Party, rather, I think it was called, um, was strange. It was just strange. He's... Yeah. <laughs> I'm just remembering that now. And it was, there was a really, there I saw a really funny tweet the other day that I have to find. It was something like, oh, you mean the person who created this fake women's equality party to keep a woman out of power to such and such? Oh, you never saw that coming. So it's, um, it's been this marketing tool. And I think it's another, another instance of Darvo maybe where it's like this total denial where a marketing tool to say that he's the strongest protector of women's rights. So therefore don't look at me. It's almost like, you know, the wizard of Oz, like don't look, look behind the curtain here. Um, I, I mean, something we saw in the sexual harassment working group when we, when we formed in 2018, we formed because of Andrew Cuomo's um, wrongheaded approach to some sexual harassment legislation that was proposed at the time. Um, and at the time, he was touting New York State's laws as the strongest in the nation, which they weren't. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a way to hide and avoid doing more. I think it's just easy to say, hooray, we're the strongest. And most people are not that informed on on the laws. And most people want to believe they're protect- protected. I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on with it. So people want to believe that. Um, and We've seen throughout the years, uh, not only Cuomo's own strange comments in the press uh, that have been reported in the press, but people within the executive branch. There's a number of high profile cases over the past maybe two or three years where um, there was a guy, Jay Kiyanaga, in um, I think it was like the, the name of the office was like the Office for People with Developmental Disabilities. And um, one of the victims was Patricia Gunning, who reported sexual harassment and experienced retaliation. And there were other victims in that office. This is an executive branch office. And there was a lot of mishandling of the complaint that went on. There was a whole separate um, set of victims with another executive office that I'm not remembering right now. But the, the, um, the victim's name was Gina Bianchi, and she reported sexual harassment and also experienced retaliation. And there's this whole trail of sexual harassment and retaliation within the executive branch that 
is under Cuomo. And if he was really serious about having workplace rights in place, you wouldn't really see that. And it's, it's something that we always like to point out in the group is that it's not like a bad apple situation. Sexual harassment really is just like a systemic problem because if you treat it as one harasser, you will never get rid of the problem because there's always going to be megalomaniacs like Cuomo or like the other people or power abusers who are trying to get away with something. But if the system doesn't allow it, the system doesn't allow it. So Cuomo's failure to have these systems in place, I think we've seen that over the years, and it's, you know, just kind of like an additional layer of insult to New Yorkers where um, he, you know, begrudgingly passed these laws in 2019, which did add some very good protections for sexual harassment. But, uh, you know, for them to apply for the private workforce more than the government in some ways, if, you know, if they're not following their own procedures in the government, this is just... Uh, really horrible because it's not, you know, we're not supposed to have two tiers of rights. We're not supposed to have one tier of rights for the private people in the private workforce and one tier of lesser rights for people in government. Yeah. Um, Just to zoom out a little and look at, you know, these different tiers of rights and how they apply to people. um, A lot of people might be under the impression that if you experience sexual harassment, in the workplace, you can take it to HR. There's some sort of complaint channel that's easily readily available to you. And it's sort of up to the victim essentially to, uh, you know, come forward and go through the appropriate mechanisms. Can you talk about what the situation really is in terms of channels for any kind of recourse or redress for people um, in Albany or in any workplace in New York state? Yeah. So the first place that people tend to think of is HR within their own office. I just can't say enough that HR is deeply, deeply not your friend. Um, Often the people who work in HR are very nice. That's true. But when you report to HR, there is this... this is often this feeling that people have, they're going to HR, they're going to really get help, but HR's duty is to protect the company and they're going to protect the company. And uh, it's really another kind of ugly way that we pit workers against each other for sure. But it's, um, you know, another layer of trauma that often happens to people when they report to HR and are not helped and the opposite happens. They're harmed and they go and they're transferred. They thought they were going to have their harassment stop, but what happens is they're transferred or they're pushed out or something like that. And it's, it's called institutional betrayal. It's another Dr. Freed term. Uh, but um, so there's HR, not a great option. Sometimes it's used against you though. If you don't report to HR, if you sue uh, or, or even under some of our laws in New York state, there's a question about, did you um, did you report? Basically, is one of the things that's analyzed, and so um, we did do a little tweak to that in 2019 that made it better for workers. But so say say you don't report, or even if you do report inside your office, you can go the, to the New York State Division of Human Rights. Um, people have had some variable results there. If you go there, if you go choose to go to DHR, you can't sue. I also like to remind people of that, but you could go to EEOC. These are the administrative reporting options you have, or you can sue in court. Really, uh, most of them um, don't tend to work out that great for victims because the processes are long. And what victims really just usually want is to move on and do the work that they wanted to do. Um, And 
this is just like the, the grueling process of all of those kind of tends to harm victims more because they have to, you know, relive their trauma. And there's kind of these standard things that I think, you know, we've seen diminishing a bit, but where victims are asked, like, how did you, what did you respond? How did you try to stop it, et cetera? And that's, you know, by virtue of, you, you know, in a lawsuit, it's like very strong because you have the defense and coming against you. But it's um, often like, such an uphill battle when victims look at any of these routes that people just think like, forget about it. I'm just going to move on. Um, And one of the problems again is because our laws aren't strong enough and our workplaces aren't structured to help victims. Like, you know, if we had, instead of an HR that's in there to protecting, to protect the company, it would be really wonderful. I think if we have like something like, I guess it would be like a union rep in every office or or not even a union rep, just somebody who's in there that is for the workers and only for the workers. And their duty is to the workers instead of to the company. And that's who you can go to. Um, I, you know, that'd be maybe a far off change, but. To clarify, are there, uh, is there a union representing the staffers in Albany or some sort of? Uh, no, there is not. And I think actually for the executive staff, it, there is a specific law against that. I would have to double check that, but I saw that recently. Of yes. course. Yes. It's very bizarre. And it's like, I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. It is, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. It is a, the New York City Council staffers have actually been working on getting, you've seen that? Yeah, it's really awesome. We've interviewed them for the show. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so more of that. Yeah, yeah. I know. Just one of the, one of the many, I guess, one of the good divisions between New York city and New York state. Um, yeah. so, um, so in the face of all this, um, the sexual harassment working group emerged, um, sort of at the height of the flurry of me too activity that was swirling around 2018, 2019. Can you talk about how that group came together and, um, and how did people in Albany respond when you basically created that intervention? Yeah, so in 2018, we most of us didn't know each other. With most of us, there were seven of us who formed it, and you know, like two of us knew each other in one pocket, and then there's another pocket, and we were connected via this uh, wonderful writer and political. Um, expert Alexis Grinnell, because she happened to know all of us throughout her work over the years. She said, you know what, I keep hearing kind of the same thread of conversations from all these people that I know. Why don't you all get in touch and talk? So we did. And what that was surrounding was these, you know, proposed bills in 2018 that frankly stunk. And so we started talking about um, why they were so wrong. And all of us in the group experienced sexual harassment on the job or witnessed it. There's somebody, I mentioned that because someone in the group didn't experience the sexual harassment herself, but her staff member did, and she was the one who reported it, the supervisor in the group reported it. Um, And so we were making the point that uh, if laws are being passed about workers and sexual harassment, those laws should be reflective of the experiences of people who have experienced that. So um, one of the first things we did was say, slow down. You all have it kind of very wrong. And what you need to do is listen to the stakeholders um, like us, but as only as an example, you should listen to many, many workers Um, and don't rush through a bad law just so you can market yourself as the strongest in the nation. Yay. Whoop-de-doo governor. Uh, and legislature. So we pushed for hearings 
legislative hearings. And that was a surprisingly hard fight. Um, I think it was like 260 something days we had to push for the hearings before we got them. And there hadn't been sexual harassment hearings in the legislature for almost 30 years at that point. Um, And so then in 2019, there was the first one in February 2019. And, you know, the point for the hearings is to hear from workers to craft good laws. And it was like, you know, almost the day was almost done and, you know, halfway done. And at that point, only the agencies had spoken and no workers had spoken at some point. So we kind of started to make some noise and and make it clear that they, the legislature had to hear from um, workers. And we wound up speaking in this um, hearing for three hours as a group. And some of the senators and assembly members were, were really amazing. This was, I think, the first time I saw Senator Piaggi speak, and I was really just blown away. Um, also by Assemblymember New, Senator Gernardis. Some of them were so um, intently focused and listening and really obviously taking in the input that needs to happen when good laws are made. Um, and we pushed for another hearing after that because we said, you know, yeah, you heard from us, great. We happen to be in a kind of privileged position of being informed on the laws because we were, you know, we all were policy people. Um, but we're only one little slice of the workforce. So we pushed for and helped to get a second hearing in May of the same year of 2019, where more um, workers were heard from. Um, and then from that, they started to get to work. and We wound up crafting with the legislators, some of these really good laws that passed in 2019, the biggest change I would say that came of that was um, New York State doing away with the severe or pervasive standard, which is still law federally and a lot of other places, which that standard basically said you have to endure this like extreme level of abuse before it counts as sexual harassment, which is um, a terrible model for the workforce. It's saying like, yeah, you, you got to deal with abuse in the workforce unless it's like extremely, extremely bad. So now New York state doesn't have that. That is great. And I think that is to the credit of everybody who listened to the workforce at the hearings. With these new uh, legal frameworks that you helped put in place, um, do any of them directly apply to the currently unfolding Cuomo case? The laws that we passed in 2019 two that come to mind that are applying the most now. So um, one is that reporting sexual harassment to the New York State Division of Human Rights, the timeframe for that was increased to three years from one year. One year is just like a teeny tiny amount of time. That's ridiculous. And now people have up to three years to report to the state DHR. That's important because it's what we like to say is trauma informed because like for all those reasons I mentioned earlier, it makes sense that people don't speak out immediately. So like some of these claims that we're hearing now happened a while ago, they should be applying where otherwise they would have been barred by the one year. And then the other major change that I think would have applied to these is the removal of that severe or pervasive standard under the law. Now the new standard is you can't be subject to inferior terms uh, in the workplace, or that's discrimination. Uh, because, you know, if you can't subject to inferior terms because of one of those protected classes. So um, this is important for these claims from Charlotte and from Lindsay, because 
under the severe pervasive standard, you actually, there, I was going to say you almost had to be raped, but there were actually cases where there was rapes that were not enough even to be meeting the standard. So it's just like really ridiculous. And also with the racial harassment, there was a bunch of cases where um, there was like multiple uses of the N-word and nooses that were decided to be not severe or pervasive. So just imagine going to work with that going on and to be to expected to work and do your job through all of that. So when we're hearing of these claims where... Um, it's the verbal sexual harassment that some some doubters like to kind of poo-poo at and say it's not bad enough. It is bad enough, and the new standard, uh, I think, would help out to you know to keep accountability. But your work is ongoing. So, what's on your legislative agenda for twenty twenty one? One of the big ones that we want to do is go further down that road of trauma-informed legislation um, and increase the time frame that people have to sue in courts from the current three years to six years. So in 2019, the thing that changed was the ability to file administratively, increased from one to three. And now we want to change the lawsuit time frame from three years to six years, again, because this, it is very rational for victims to not report until they're safe. And the other... Um, big change we want to see is to make um, a clear uh, inclusion in the New York state law that staff of electeds are employed by New York state. And this is tied to the federal Title VII loophole that I mentioned. Uh, And it's just the federal law is really bad. We want to make sure that New York state law is better and protective. And this is derived from us seeing a number of cases where the New York state assembly argued uh, that you know it wasn't the employer for people who worked for the assembly. We've seen a similar argument in a case by a woman named Alexis Marquez, where the judiciary system is saying they're not the employer, but just that the individual judge was the employer. So to think of, and the judge was the alleged harasser. So that's a really bad argument that only the harasser is the employer. That's just that's just not good for workers. Um, so we want to make it really clarified that. There's, there's recourse and that you can co- go to essentially with the person who really employs you to keep accountability. There, I'll just mention the other two that I think that are really important. So there's, um, there's a carve out in the, one of the whistleblower laws that says it does not apply to staff of legislative uh, members or of the judiciary. We want to remove that carve out. And then there's also a provision about... Um, not having uh, liquidated damages. We want to ban liquidated damages in settlement agreements. And what liquidated damages are is there's a preset amount in a settlement agreement that says, like, if you violate the settlement agreement, you have to pay $20,000 or something like that, the worker. And this is, it's just, um, it doesn't belong in these type of agreements. It's more, um, you know, in non-workforce agreements. And the point of these uh, inclusion of these liquidated damages clauses are usually just to like punish and terrify workers from speaking out. So we're going to remove those. Lastly, um, and yeah, I don't, I don't mean to, I always feel weird asking this question because it puts the emphasis on the individual, but uh, for, for a listener who is experiencing harassment or discrimination or any other type of abusive behavior in a workplace, especially a political workplace, what would your advice to them be with the current laws that we have? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, my my first advice is always find a lawyer, which is um, 
hopefully someone who can help you navigate what your choices are and where your powers are. Uh, I also mentioned that because a lot of the people in the working group didn't know that you can often get a lawyer without paying up front, especially for this type of case. You almost will never and you shouldn't pay up front. Um, important to know because a lot of times the sexual harassment is taking place with people who are newer to the workforce and don't know their rights and don't have money. Uh, and so, you know, they're often dissuaded from reaching out, but I think a lawyer is, is the first step and, um, you know, that helps guide it. Yeah. One, one thing that New York thankfully has an abundance lawyers. Yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> But yeah, but we also have assholes in abundance, so it's and, kind of and some are better lawyers. Some are both yeah. Them, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not uh, exclusive. But um thank you for walking us through that really intricate uh sort of uh overview of how incredibly um free of accountability so much yeah. involvement is. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically yeah. like sovereign immunity for yes. everybody who has gotten elected. Yes, but. it's it's strange. We something I like to say is like it is not a perk of your office to be able to abuse your staff. Mm. So that's like one of the reasons we're just like get rid of this. It's yeah, Jesus. All right. Well, thank you, thank you so much for for explaining that with such clarity. Um, and I'm sure our readers across the country will find it really informative and probably find many examples happening in their own state houses. Yeah, so. unfortunately, mm. yes. But thank you both again. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Rita Passarell, a former Albany legislative staffer and member of the Sexual Harassment Working Group. We will put much more information on this story up at the Descent website. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. And for ARG today, I'm returning to the question of gig workers and national politics. Specifically, the question of why, after releasing a video supporting the Amazon workers in Bessemer and their union drive, Joe Biden would quietly hire someone who was the architect of Prop 22. Edward Ungueso Jr. at Vice's Motherboard, in a piece titled Biden's Top Labor Advisor Helped Uber Gut Workers' Rights, explains the background to this situation. Seth Harris was an Obama-era labor official, at one point acting labor secretary, but in the interim between Democratic administrations, his work focused on creating the framework that I discussed earlier in the show, that carve-out for gig workers. Ungueso writes, quote, Harris co-authored a 2015 study formalizing the independent worker federal category, which avoids making gig workers actual employees while providing a minimum level of benefits. To achieve that goal, the independent worker category would bar workers from overtime, minimum wage, and unemployment benefits, but give them the right to collectively bargain as well as access to civil rights protections. Today, that idea is the foundation for Uber's nationwide campaign to continue misclassifying gig workers and a key weapon in its negotiations with unions to codify union representation without employment, end quote. Harris also worked at an employer-side law firm, Denton's, and at his own private law firm where he advertised his Washington connections as a selling point. 
Max Moran told Ungueso, quote, you're putting someone whose work at Denton's was essentially direct union busting or helping firms to develop union busting techniques or preventing an ending tipped minimum wage. A person who is paid to help employers kill labor power, you're then going to turn around and trust this person to counsel the president on labor issues. Under any circumstances, that is an insanely one-sided method of getting your advice, he added. It's especially egregious under a president who has been trying to promote himself as the most pro-union, pro-labor president in modern history, end quote. There remains a search, in other words, for this in-between space where Democrats can get enough unions on board with a carve-out for workers to be able to brand themselves as progressive even while they continue to coddle the big companies. Harris isn't the first of those hires to signal that this administration doesn't intend to ding tech profits. In an earlier piece, Ungueso listed off the Amazon, Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb personnel who staffed Biden's transition team, and Vice President Kamala Harris's brother-in-law is an Uber executive who also co-chaired her Senate transition team in 2016. In other words, as Ungueso writes, quote, on the one hand, we have Biden's words and rhetoric, and on the other, we have personnel choices like Harris, which throw into question whether or not Biden will be the labor champion he promised to be. My pick for ARG is the Deep South has a rich history of resistance as Amazon is learning by Jamel Bowie in the New York Times. So it seems like every few years we hear about a union drive somewhere in a Deep South state and people get really excited and national media outlets are all laser focused on some production plant that looks like it could be on the cusp of going union. Lately, the speculation tends to center around auto factories that have escaped the UAW's orbit in the Rust Belt. And people get excited because it would be a watershed for the labor movement after generations of trying to organize the South, largely unsuccessfully. Yet typically, the weeks of anxious anticipation end with a sigh of frustration. Part of this is due to these structural barriers, like right-to-work laws, that we have documented many times on this podcast. There's also a generally conservative political climate that champions big business. Many workers are fearful of the risk of unionizing, often after being bombarded with anti-union propaganda. But Bowie reminds us that despite all these obstacles, the South is not just an impenetrable bastion of conservatism. And that brings us to the Amazon union fight in Bessemer, Alabama. Why Alabama, you might ask? Bowie leads us on an alternative tour of the South, focusing on its radical labor history. There have been a number of histories of the Southern labor movement that have been written about and from the left. And students of movement history may recall that long before the Freedom Riders descended on the South to fight Jim Crow, communist organizers were agitating and building grassroots labor solidarity, in many cases forging multiracial leftist movements in the Deep South that challenged both economic exploitation and structural racism. Bowie writes, quote, the size, scope, and sophistication of the union drive in Bessemer should complicate commonly held ideas of Alabama and the Deep South as backward and relentlessly hostile to progress. It should be a reminder of the ways in which the fight for racial equality has historically been one for the dignity of labor as well. And it stands as well as an opportunity to explore a side of the state's history that gets worse than short shrift in our collective memory, unquote. While the South is famous for producing some extremely brazen racists at every level of society, from pro-segregation politicians like George Wallace to the brutality of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing to folks like Jeff Sessions today, Bowie continues, quote, the strength of reaction in Alabama is a function in great part of the state's tradition of black politics and black radicalism. In the wake of emancipation, formerly enslaved blacks established union leagues where they organized for self-defense and agitated for legal and political equality. Unquote. 
Bowie also points out that in the late 1800s, quote, black farmers and sharecroppers throughout the state formed colored chapters of the agricultural wheel, a cooperative alliance of farmers devoted to debt relief, the end of one crop farming, the nationalization of the railroads and the strict regulation of banks and businesses, unquote. Elsewhere in the South, we can also look at the 1881 Washoe women's strike in Atlanta as another major milestone for labor organizing in the region, led by Black women domestic workers, about 80 years before domestic workers began organizing alongside the civil rights movement, and more than 100 years before largely immigrant women domestic workers, before today's domestic workers began to mobilize as a key voice for the labor of women of color. The populist movement of the late 19th century helped see the first cooperative efforts by black and white farmers to build power together in the rural South. And this cross-racial alliance won a number of elections in the South, winning a Senate seat for Marion Butler for North Carolina in 1895. The movement was thwarted, however, through violent white supremacist backlash, setting off a long pattern of progress and clawbacks over the course of the 20th century. Yet Bowie notes that the populist spirit was later seized upon by the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. The union still had a somewhat racially hierarchical structure, but Bowie points out, quote, Black workers held the majority of middle and low-level leadership positions within the union. Included among them were communists, who helped spearhead Mine Mill's organizing drive in the wake of the 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act, which had opened the door to unionization in large swaths of the economy, unquote. With the passage of the Wagner Act in the mid-1930s, union ranks grew across the country. But the trajectory of the mine mill workers shows the toll that endemic racism, the Cold War, and structural shifts in the industry would take on the labor movement in the South. Quote, for most of the next 20 years, black workers of mine mill would struggle against racism and capital and a singular push for racial equality and the emancipation of labor, neither of which could exist without the other. And while they would ultimately lose their fight, Overwhelmed by the steel industry, its red baiting in Washington, and its own private army of racist vigilantes, the spirit of the mine mill would live on, and not just the civil rights movement. It's too easy to read the history of Southern labor organizing as a series of near misses, but the legacy of that civil rights struggle has imbued the present-day campaigns for immigrants' rights across the South, in which migrant workers from Latin America have taken the lead, having moved into the lowest rungs of the economic ladder, which were previously dominated by Black workers. Bowie says, quote, we should remember that the political character of the South is more than its shading on an electoral college map, that the entire region is home to a rich history of resistance against the twin forces of race hierarchy and class exploitation, unquote. Bringing this back to Amazon, the workers at the Bessemer facility may or may not know all of the intricacies of the South's radical history, but it's certainly in the air surrounding their workplace, and it's deep in the soil. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making this sound good. And please go to our Patreon site if you want to support our journalism. There are multiple tiers at which you can become a supporting member. And you can also get some really cool Belabored swag while you're at it. And if you have any comments, questions, or feedback on the show, please let us know. If you're trying to organize your workplace, especially if you're trying to organize your workplace in the South, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you if you're trying to secure supplies of the COVID-19 vaccine for you and your fellow workers. And we also want to hear from you if you are, say, a rideshare driver, anticipating that the new ruling that came out of the UK might affect your job here. You can get us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. 
Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.